This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted that you're with us today. Today, we're going to talk about a topic you probably thought 12 months ago we wouldn't be discussing, but it's overcoming the vaccine hesitancy related to COVID-19. And we couldn't have a better person to interview than Vivian Johnson. She's the Senior Vice President of Clinical Support at Parkland Health and Hospital System and is a doctor of pharmacy. Vivian, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You know, we've heard for months that people are hesitant, skeptical, uh, nervous about all of these vaccines. But you're on the front lines. When you talk to people, what have you heard, not only from the people in healthcare, but in the general public? Yes, Steve, you're absolutely correct. Uh, we have heard from a lot of people about being nervous and skeptical about taking the vaccines. And it's not just in the general public, even within the healthcare environment, uh, we've seen this. And people have been concerned simply because of, it could be that, you know, they've heard that we did not take as long to develop this vaccine compared to others. Many are concerned about the side effects that the vaccines would actually uh, have on them. We've even had people to say they're concerned about getting the virus from the vaccine. So there are a number of reasons why people have uh, basically stated they're concerned about getting it and not wanting to get it. You know, it's been reported uh, that black Americans have been more skeptical than most Americans about the coronavirus. In fact, in looking at a Pew Research Center survey, that they released in December of 2020, they found that only 42% of black adults in the United States said they would definitely or probably get a COVID-19 vaccine when it was available, compared to 83% for Asian Americans, 63% for Hispanics, and 71% of whites. Do you have any context or anything you can add as to why this skepticism is out there? Steve, yes. The one main reason that we hear that black Americans are fearful or skeptical about getting the vaccine, not only because of the fear of the side effects, but it goes back to mistrust, which stems from a history of mistreatment of blacks when conducting experiments uh, or seeking care. And one of the common reports that we hear about often is that the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which was done, and whereby black men were actually placed in a study, but they were denied treatment. And in the entire time, they thought that they were actually receiving the appropriate medical care. And this went on for 40 years. So it has been very difficult for blacks to actually 
get beyond that because the question is, how do we know? How, what has changed to basically uh, make them feel that this is not occurring today? And I don't know if you've actually heard about a recent event where there was a black physician, I believe it was in Indiana, who from her bed actually recorded where she felt that she was being mistreated while she was battling COVID. She ended up dying, but again, it basically just opened up wounds again, and it causes a lot of challenges for us when we're trying to actually get blacks to be more receptive to uh, participating and taking the vaccine. So it, 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 there is really um, a lot of history behind it. And uh, this is why I am very concerned and passionate about doing what I can do in the community. And I would like for Parkland and all healthcare workers to help with actually getting out information and education to actually show that the mistreatment that was done many years ago is not being done today. So what can we do about it? What's the solution? See, what I would recommend is that, number one, as health professionals, we must admit the wrongdoings from the past then we must also provide information, provide education around the, the vaccines, the uh, clinical trials, what to expect when receiving the vaccines so that uh, the blacks would not be surprised and feel that we have not shared all the information that was actually made available about the vaccines. And the last thing I would say is that we need to seek trusted leaders within the communities that would help provide the information and communicate this information to the black and brown communities. Again, having black leaders, black medical experts who would actually be able to go out and educate the communities about the vaccine and COVID-19, I think would actually help and the blacks would probably receive it much better. The other thing, there are other sororities and fraternities, faith-based leaders in the communities that I think we need to actually reach out to to help us in this communication. These are all trusted leaders or trusted messengers, and I think that that's, those are the things, the strategies that we need to take to help us with actually getting the information out and helping to try and improve the acceptance of the vaccine among the black and brown communities. You know, those are great ideas, great recommendations. You know, some people, as you know, want to do their own research. So do you have suggestions for good, reliable sources of information that people can research to learn more about COVID-19 vaccines? I would recommend first the Center for Disease Controlled website. Um, That website usually keeps up-to-date information on the vaccines, the disease, and how we should respond and conduct ourselves. So I would start there. I would also look to the local health department websites. There should be information on that website as well regarding the vaccines, um, the COVID-19 response, and what you should do. And lastly, I would seek information from your medical providers 
from other healthcare providers that would be able to provide reliable, trusted information regarding the vaccines and COVID-19. So initially, those are the resources I would recommend that, that our listeners actually refer to. You're listening to Vivian Johnson. She's a pharmacist, PharmD, out at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Her interview and all of our interviews are on our podcast called The Human Side of Healthcare. You just find your favorite podcast app. We are probably there, and you can listen on your own time. Back with more with Vivian talking about the COVID-19 vaccination and how we can maximize this new tool in our toolbox to fight COVID next on The Human Side of Healthcare. This is The Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the Radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation now with Vivian Johnson. She's a Senior Vice President of Clinical Support Services and a pharmacist at Parkland Health and Hospital System. And obviously talking about the COVID-19 vaccination. So let me ask you a couple other questions, Vivian. Let's assume an individual is ready to get the vaccine. And based on your experience in clinical support and being a pharmacist, what would be your response to a person that gets their first dose, their arm's a little sore, but they feel pretty good and say, oh, I'm great now. I don't need to go back and get the second dose. What would you say to them? Again, this is why it's so important to try to educate the community in advance so they would know that in order to actually get the full effect of the vaccine, they must take both doses. There, there are several vaccines that will be coming out. The ones that are available now require that you take two doses of them. And at this time, the study that we have basically has shown that the full 95% efficacy does not occur until after you've received the second dose. The first dose may give you some immunity, but it is not enough to get the, the, at the rate that basically we said that it would be 95%. So I would say don't stop after the first you, you must take the second dose to get the full benefit. So let me ask you this. If you take the first dose, and then I think you have to wait roughly 21 days to get your second dose, so at least that is on Pfizer, I think, and you get Correct. your second dose, how long after the second dose do you feel you've achieved that efficacy you talked about? Right now, we don't know, Steve, how long the efficacy of the vaccine will actually last. Uh, there's more studies. We need to continue to watch people and patients to determine that. However, we know that full immunity usually occurs with the Pfizer vaccine about seven days after you receive the second dose. So you really, if, if someone is trying to determine whether or not they can just stop with the first dose and not do the second dose, you'll get immunity after the first dose about 12 days, 10 days after the first dose, but it will not be the full 95% full immunity. So it's very important that you take both uh, doses and know that, again, we don't know how long the immunity will last until we get more information. 
so it will require, even though we are taking the vaccine, it will require that we continue to wear our mask, practice social distancing, wash our hands until we can get really 70 to 80 percent of the population to actually be vaccinated. That's why it's so important because we know that this is a big challenge to try to get as many people vaccinated in order to beat this virus. So even though you're taking the vaccine, you will need to continue to wear the mask until we're able to get 70 to 80 percent of our population uh, vaccinated. You know, Vivian, I can't thank you enough for saying that. You know why? I think some people, and I understand people have cabin fever. I know we've been at this since March, but the healthcare heroes in the hospitals are fatigued as well and putting their life on the line every day. But I think some people, when they heard about the vaccine, got a false sense of security. Oh, I'll get my vaccine and things will be back to normal. I'm so glad that you reiterated continue to wear a mask, physical distance, stay out of large crowds, wash your hands. Oh, as you said earlier, the virus is going to continue to win. So Vivian, we don't know how long the efficacy will go. Do you have any idea or thoughts about if we're going to have to get boosters, if we have to do it every five years, if COVID-19 will kind of be like the flu shot where you get it annually, or is it just too early to tell? This is a great question, and we have had that question to come up quite often. And again, because the trial is really has not been completed, we have not been able to see the use of the vaccine for an extended period of time to know whether or not we will have more uh, cases of the virus again. Once we get 70 to 80 percent of our uh, population vaccinated, we don't know whether or not we're going to start seeing a reoccurrence, uh, the surge again uh, after we get that. So unfortunately, no one knows that answer today to know whether or not we're going to, it's going to be required uh, annually or we'll need to get a booster shot. No one knows that yet. But again, I think Definitely maybe uh, six to eight months or so uh, after we've gotten many of our um, many people vaccinated that we may be able to to um, have more information on that. And as we continue to study this virus. Vivian, are you finding people to be disincentivized to come get the vaccination if they know that they have to come back twice and they still have to wear a mask? I understand that we, again, people are concerned about not being able to go out without wearing the mask. But what I, what I see that is, is that once you start having family members impacted by this, I, I think we, we need to, to also continue to provide people who can relate to the community, to those populations, to those, and they will receive that information better. Like we're saying, the black and browns, I think we need to work on ensuring that who's giving that message, people that they trust. And regarding others who say, I, I just want to go in the store without wearing a mask. Again, I think until people start feeling that it's impacting them personally, Within their family, I, I don't think that they will 
I mean, they may continue to say, hey, well, it, it, it won't impact me. It's not me. I'm, I, I, I'm not going to follow the rules. Boy, if ever we needed a let's all rally together and let's do one for the team, this is really yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you know what is so difficult is that I, I work every day here in the hospital and I see nurses, respiratory therapists, physicians working and just trying to care for our patients. And I, it's almost like I, I, I wish that sometimes the, the public could hear what the voices and just see. And I know there have been a lot of news reports on stories, but I tell you, it's difficult to see what the staff is going through and knowing that they have families too that they're having to care for once they leave. So I think continuing to provide that type of information to the public, I, I hope would help with people understanding why it is necessary for them to make the change and follow the guidance. Because again, if we want to actually stop this within the next year, everybody is going to say, yes, we're going to do this. But if, we, if everybody does not agree, you're right, it, it will, we will continue to be in this situation. It will get worse in our hospitals. It will, it will get worse that we will not even be able to care for people who come in for COVID nor people who come in for non-COVID-related issues. So I, I think we are going to, if we continue, we are going to continue to see the rise in patients dying. And again, and we're not, we're not able to actually care for them. And maybe people will, will believe that, yes, this is really happening. We need to do something different. That is so beautifully said and so passionate from the heart. And, you know, in just the context of what we're talking about here, last week we had Dr. Joseph Chang on the show. He's the chief medical officer down at Parkland. So here is a comment that he made last week that perfectly complements what we just heard from Vivian. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, we can only do this together. If only half of us mind uh, the restrictions, then we're lost as a community. If only half of us or less get the vaccine, then we are lost as a community. This is the kind of thing that, that public health has always been designed for, um, policies are designed for, is because we know that in these situations, we can only do it together. This is when Dallas, Fort Worth, need to come together and say in one voice, we will love each other enough that we will work together to get this done. That's the only way. That is the only way. Thomas, wow, what about that? Together, together, together. It couldn't be any clearer. We have all got to join hands and work together to achieve herd immunity. You know, we've seen so much division in our country, and it almost seems like there are the people who, A, feel like none of this applies to me, and B, the people who really do care about others. And I think we need to move more people into that second camp. Amen. Uh, Steve, I'm excited about this next segment. We have Dr. Srinivas Yalapragada, a cardiologist at Medical City Las Colinas, and we're going to talk about taking good care of our heart next on the human side of healthcare.
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And today we're going to talk about heart health tips to prevent heart disease, especially with COVID-19 and people staying at home. We're delighted that we've got a cardiologist from Medical City, Las Colinas, Dr. Yala Pragada, and he is going to answer our questions. He's going to help our listeners understand the importance of good heart health. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being on the show. Thank you so much for your time. What are some of the major signs of heart disease? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, heart disease as it pertains to, you know, the things that are most dangerous, such as having a heart attack and things of that nature, you know, especially with more common signs are seen with with men. In fact, women sometimes have slightly different presentations, but generally speaking, um, the most common symptom related to heart disease is chest pain. And of course, some kind of, some kind of variant of that. Sometimes it's chest pressure, and the caliber of the pain is also important. Um, some people experience sharp chest pain. Some people experience like a dullness pain. So based on patients, uh, you know, the way they are, they, they present a little bit differently. But by and large, some form of chest pain is the most common presentation in, in terms of symptomatology for heart disease. Another telltale thing of heart disease is going to be associated symptoms with that, um, such as shortness of breath, lightheadedness, dizziness, um, exertional problems, meaning um, when you're not able to, um, you know, walk as, for, as far as you normally can or going upstairs really quickly has elicited some of these symptoms. Those are things that are going to be concerning for heart disease. And then, and of course, sometimes that chest pain can travel or radiate to different areas. Um, more classically, it can change and move to the jaw or the neckline. Usually it's along the left side of, of the neck sometimes towards the left shoulder and down the arm. Um, very classically, we, we see patients who very quickly tell us that they have severe chest tightness, pressure in the chest that radiates down their left arm shooting pains. Um, that is so, sort of the more common um, finding we see when we uh, are evaluating patients with uh, heart disease in, in the acute setting, meaning when they're coming in with a heart attack. But I think on the spectrum of those symptoms, when they're slowly developing, Usually patients who present with heart disease, and that's why it's so important to kind of educate people on the symptoms of the dangerous signs, sometimes more often than not, patients are having some early signs of that. Maybe they're getting chest pains and tightness while they're doing certain activities. Maybe it's while they're walking from their car to work. Um, maybe it's from, you know, unloading the groceries from the car. Some Some activity that normally would be very easy to do becomes a little bit more challenging or they're noticing they're more tired. Um, so those are the kind of the big things. And I think between men and women, um, men more commonly have more classical symptoms. I think sometimes women have slightly atypical symptoms. And what I mean by that is they may present with more um, what might seem like stomach upset type pain or upper abdominal pain and, and things like that. And even men can present with what we call slightly atypical symptoms beyond the classical form that what I just described. But those are the, that's kind of the spectrum of symptoms that you'd expect with heart disease. You know, that's very interesting. And when you, when you talk about those different symptoms and you talk about men and women, 
You think in terms of people as they get older have cardiovascular issues, but who really is at risk for heart disease? Well, I think that's an excellent question, especially during the this time of the COVID pandemic. You know, I'm actually seeing you know, more younger patients, actually, not just the elderly or older population of, of people develop heart disease. And I think one of the reasons is um, m- many of us are being told to work from home. And what that usually means is a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of computer desk work and, and things of that nature. And so long periods of time being sedentary, maybe multitasking, doing multiple things at once during meetings and so on. And so more, the more common issue lately that I've experienced in my practice is um, a younger cohort of patients are developing heart disease. Um, and that's in, in addition to the elderly who are also less active. And so, you know, the expectation was there's going to be a point in this pandemic as we are doing our best efforts to avoid the spread of disease, of course, using barrier protection, not meeting as often with family and, and coworkers and so on. That is going to be something that we're seeing. But I actually thought that, you know, in the very beginning of this pandemic, we didn't see a lot of patients with heart disease. And I think it was because people were just not seeing physicians, worried to come to the emergency room unless they were really ill. And then I think towards the middle to end of this thing, I hope we're towards the end of this thing right now, um, we're actually getting more often having patients presenting with heart heart attacks and, and, and strokes. And so the incidence of thing is slightly increasing based on my personal experience. And I think it's because of the more sedentary lifestyle. So to go back to your question, who is at risk? I think it's those people who um, you're just not as active as they once were, who are having more of a sedentary lifestyle, who are more at home. And it's hard. Um, we can, you know, there's a lot of ways to mitigate that. But it's very hard to avoid being sedentary these days because we're all supposed to be staying at home as much as possible. You bring up some excellent points And Thomas and I have interviewed people who are EMTs and also emergency room physicians, and you are so right, especially during like April, May, and June, people were afraid to call 911 and come to the hospital. And we actually had some ambulance services that kept statistics, and there were many people passing away at home from heart attacks because they were afraid to come to the hospital. I don't know if you saw any of that at Medical City Las Colinas, but it was pretty widespread in the Metroplex. Absolutely. I mean, we, um, you know, I actually go around and uh, meet with the EMS um, groups in the area, and we give talks about warning signs of heart disease, some of the clinical treatment strategies when they're in the field that might help our treatment when they bring patients over to the hospital. We have a very large, um, what we call a a cardiogenic shock program where we're treating patients who are very, very ill from heart disease and heart attacks. You know, we have advanced heart failure services within our system, within the Medical City Network, and all that is performed actually just not far from Las Colinas at uh, Medical City Heart and Spine Hospital, where, where I also work. But absolutely, so when we go out to the community and I talk to the EMS groups, they echo the same thing. That period of time in the summer was very strange. <laughs> and even right out the onset earlier in the year, probably early spring, when this first started, absolutely, that was the experience by a lot of people, both in urgent care clinics, EMS, ERs were kind of more or less empty for periods of times when I usually would be very busy. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely the issue. And, and, and we've had to do a lot of community outreach and discussions with EMS and ways to encourage them to bring patients to the ER. Because I, I actually think even nursing homes and stuff like that, where they would be less inclined to call 
you know, EMS and bring patients to the hospital for a period of time because they just, people were so worried and concerned about the spread of this illness. You know, I saw a statistic this morning. As you know, many people throughout the nation have been working from home and only about 17 to 18 percent have actually returned to their offices, which means there's still a lot of people at home. So to our listeners, what steps can you recommend during this pandemic that they can do at home to help prevent heart disease? You know, I think that I think fighting the um, the necessity really for patients' work to be at the desk is going to be really hard. But I think making breaks, you know, if if people can, you know, especially if they're working from home and um, they're doing a lot of Zoom calls and meetings, the best thing they can do on the outset is to plan. Um, just like they're planning their meetings and schedules throughout the day and projects they have to complete to finish their work day and work week, they need to plan time to exercise. The routine might have been, you know, working out in the morning or going for a walk in the after, in the evening when you get home from work. I, I think if people can keep up that routine, that would be great. While you're at home, maybe get up early as you normally would, do some activity to exercise, go out for a walk, go out for a jog, maybe invest in a elliptical or a treadmill or something like that to do at the home. Whatever techniques and ways you can convince yourself to encourage yourself to exercise, that would be that would be great. I also think that I've told patients in my office to, in the middle of the day, you're sitting at a, at your desk, you know, you kind of set a timer on your iWatch or your phone or on your computer and just remind yourself to stand, stretch your legs, move around, and, and do something like that. Some people are purchasing those desks that sort of rise that force you to stand up and do your work at the desk while standing up. That also is, I think, a, a very nice kind of technique and tool to encourage yourself to exercise. Um, and, and stay, you know, mobile and, and move around a little bit. You know, it's interesting on a, on a side note, um, we, we take care of patients here for heart disease, but we also have um, catheter-based treatments to treat people with pulmonary embolism, which is a different disease process in a different area, but similar to heart disease, it's a problem of a sedentary lifestyle. And so every pulmonary embolism, blood clot in the lung case that I've treated with a procedure I can't even tell you how many times I've heard from that patient. It's while I work 18 hours straight a day, I'm always at the desk. And now that I'm working at home, I feel like my work hour is even longer than normal. And so they're, they're not getting up. They're not doing much. They're not drinking water. They're not eating. And, and that relative dehydration and immobility just promotes venous clots and deep venous thrombosis and blood clots in the leg that can go and travel up through the heart into the lung and cause a pulmonary embolism that can cause other ramifications like other forms of heart disease, like congestive heart failure and other things down the road, high blood pressure in the lungs. And it's a, it's a huge problem. And so uh, every one of those cases I've done lately have all been for the same reason. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I've been asked to stay at home. And because of that, I'm staying in the desk for long periods of time. And now this has happened. And so with those patients, especially, we've gone through these details of ways they can be more ambulatory, mobile, exercise, and really put the onus on all of us to motivate everyone to do more activities, even though they have these commitments at work to be productive and participate in meetings and calls and all that stuff. But you got to take breaks. You're listening to Dr. Srinivas Yalapragada. He's a cardiologist in the mid-cities at Medical City Las Colinas. And when we come back, we are going to deep dive into exercise physiology, how to get the most of these times 
and protect and strengthen your heart. That's next on the human side of healthcare. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Srinivas Yalapragada, cardiologist at Medical City Los Colinas. Let's talk about good old-fashioned walking. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Now, in Texas, we don't have hills. Uh, we don't have mountains that we can really get that good pound on. But how fast should we get our heart beating? And how effective is just a good old-fashioned flatland walk? You know, there, there's a lot of exercise physiology as it relates to walking and how valuable that is and all that kind of a thing. I think if you're a person who's new to exercise, you know, the recommendation is different. I think if you're... Maybe you used to be more active, used to go to the gym, and now you're more sedentary and you need to kind of get back into it. I think the recommendations might be different. You might want to push that person a little bit more. But if you're new to exercise, if you get your heart rate around 80 to 100, you know, with a nice good walk, that's pretty good if you're starting out with exercise and walking. If you want to increase that a little bit more, then you're going into like a fast walk or almost a light jog. And if you're someone who you think you can handle it, maybe you've started with a walking program over the last few weeks and you feel like you could do more, I think then in general going to 100 to 120 range might be a good way. But that's usually what I recommend patients. As they are far removed from a heart attack, for example, then when I see patients in the office after we've treated them with a stent and they've recovered from their acute heart disease and heart attack issue, we have a discussion about how they're feeling, how active they are, maybe they've returned to work and they feel great. Well, then I might say, hey, do a little bit more than that. Perhaps um, go at a level where you might get a little sweat, you know. So maybe that's closer to 120 or a little bit higher. And that might be a slighter, maybe more of a jog. Um, so it, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's generally what I recommend. I kind of think about who I'm speaking with, what their category is based on where they're at, and then we kind of go from there. So what I found, now I spent a little bit of time in Colorado tromping around the mountains in central Colorado, and it was real easy to get up into the 130s, 140s, and you'd have to stop and let your heart come back down. I'm in my early 60s, so I didn't push it too much. Got really well conditioned there, and then you come back to, uh, obviously, the flatness, and you go for a walk, and you're pushing it to get up over 100 beats, beats per minute, heartbeats per minute. So you have any thoughts or tips on how we can maximize our terrain? That's a that's great. I mean, you know, I think that if you have a good amount of time, uh, I've noticed. I grew up in Dallas and um, in the suburbs and in the Plano area, and I've just noticed that we have a lot more parks than we did when I was growing up. And so I think that you know, if you if you're going in your neighborhood and you're not able to get that heart rate up to where you want to get a good workout in. Once a week, set some time out in your schedule where you can actually do a little bit more. Go out to a park, find a park locally. And those areas have a little bit more uneven terrain than just your regular neighborhoods and communities. So um, I think, and then trying another walk in, that, in those areas. Th you'd be surprised just going in your own neighborhood, even, a, even in a suburb like Plano. I grew up there and there are areas where there's a little bit of a hill here and there. And maybe you do some walks when you find an area back and forth in that area just to get your heart rate up and get a little bit more in intensity in your walk. My dad's a heart patient. And I've, I've encouraged him to do that as well. So, All right. Excellent. And I want to get this really locked into our minds. 
we're talking about, okay, let's just say 90 to 100 beats per minute. Let's say that that just walking, right? Like you've got the dog, you've got the kids, you're pushing a stroller, you're out for a walk. How many minutes, how many times a week? Personally, I think if everyone did 20 to 30 minutes of that every day, that'd be, that'd be great. Okay. You know, every day and I, every day, I think everyone can get 20 or 30 minutes somehow. Find it. Either wake up, find it. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, I think getting up earlier, but you, everyone's got that much time. I think you can find it. It's a lot harder for some people. Sometimes I don't do it as much, but I definitely try. The only time I have time personally to work out is to get up early in the morning. And, and that's when I found the most time to do it. Um, so I block out a good 30 minutes and 30, that's 30 minutes is a lot. You can do a lot in 20 to 30 minutes, get a good sweat, get to get your heart rate up and you'll see the results. I get a scale in your house and weigh yourself, see the weight come down and that will motivate you further to keep going. I think it's just consistency, you know, and I, I think the only way to do things on a consistent basis to do it almost daily, those people that do something almost daily have the highest likelihood to continue doing it for a long time. If you're saying, okay, do this two or three times a week, it's, it's not the same. I think if you're doing something like walking every day, you're more likely to, to stick to it. Does that make sense? It, it does, totally. Yeah. Now, here's a question. So this is something I've been observing because obviously as I'm getting older, it's harder to fight the battle of the pounds. And I realize when I go walk and get a really good 30, 45-minute walk in, you come back and you're hungry if you can now you're talking about maybe an afternoon or evening walk here versus a morning walk because obviously with a morning walk it's a different thing. But right. if you can avoid eating, does that help your body basically go burn some fat after that walk? Not really. Um darn it, that know. was the wrong answer. <laughs> Steve, <laughs> fix this. <laughs> it, you know, it's it's different for different people. I mean, I I will tell you that it's easier for men to have that strategy than women, unfortunately. That's just how the physiology works. But I, I think that walking after dinner is a good time to do it as you're winding down. There's a lot written about, well, if you're going to do an evening walk, try not to snack when you get home because it's not good to eat just before you go to bed um, for multiple reasons. But having a good time where your body is resting and digesting, you know, so you have your dinner you go for a, a short walk, 25, 30 minutes, you come home, you do your night routine, you go to sleep, you get up in the morning, you eat breakfast, you go on with your day. If you have that routine, you've given yourself 10, 12 hours of time when you're not eating, and that's enough time for your body to digest and reset. And, and walking itself, if you go for a long walk, I can see why you might be hungry, but putting it to a time period when you've just eaten may be a good time, or especially when it's something like walking, or shortly after might be a good strategy, but that, that's just something I've thought about to do myself. But it's hard to walk in the evening sometimes. <laughs> right. And in with summer, kids it's, down it's and hotter. Stuff like that. Right. Absolutely. Sure. So one of the things with COVID-19 that we've seen and heard is that it affects heart rhythm. Here of people mm -hmm. with palpitations, increased heart rhythm. How are you seeing this play out now that we've had some time and some studies behind us? How does COVID potentially affect our heart rhythm? Well, COVID um, is a major offender of these um, things like, I don't know if you guys have heard of um, atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, which are atrial arrhythmias that basically originate in the top chambers of the heart. I actually um, have flutter and had an ablation and got fib, so um, that's why I asked, actually. Well, uh, and that's exactly 
we see it in a lot of patients with COVID. In fact, that's the most common cardiac presentation that I've seen is some kind of an arrhythmia presentation. Um, sometimes it's not AFib or atrial flutter, but it's some spectrum of that. Sometimes it's these little, we call proxisms or little runs of these things that we see on continuous um, heart monitoring in the hospital when people are admitted with um, COVID-19. And the way we're treating that is with blood thinners like we discussed earlier, um, because the problem with those arrhythmias is that the blood efficiency and the way the heart is pumping in the heart is not as efficient and blood won't travel as smoothly. It tends to become a little stagnant and pool in the various chambers of the heart that go irregular at those times. And that can cause a blood clot that can form within the heart. And then that could, of course, lead to an embolic event like a stroke, heart attack, or go down to another vascular bed in the body and cause a problem. So we tend, we tend to pe- we, we always treat people when they have that arrhythmia problem with an anticoagulant, um, a blood thinner, and we always try to rate control them with um, medications that slow the heart rate and calm it down. And the majority of people with COVID tend to, as they recover from the illness slowly, sometimes, unfortunately, um, the burden of that arrhythmia actually starts to, to dissipate as well. And so we've been managing it with things like beta blockers calcium channel blockers, which are medications we use to slow the heart rate, and that has really been effective. Um, in, in certain scenarios, we keep them on that regimen, and if it's, they stay persistently in those irregular heartbeats um, weeks out from recovery from COVID, then we bring them in and treat them with something like an ablation like you had or um, under anesthesia and electrical shock to reset their heart back to normal. Dr. Srinivas Yalapragada, cardiologist out at Medical City Las Colinas, thank you for your thoughts. Steve? You know, we've just learned prevention is the key, and we hope these tips will help you, our listeners, have great ideas on how to take care of your heart. We thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week on the Human Side of Healthcare.